I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Tracy Seidslinger, a clinical psychologist based in New York City. She's a co-founder of the New York Center for Community Psychoanalysis. You can follow her at Instagram at NYC Depth Psychologist and follow the New York Center for Community Psychoanalysis at nyc.community.psychoanalysis at Instagram. You can also visit her website, nycdepthpsychology.org. That's nycdepthpsychology.org. She also works with the Museum of Motherhood, which is now accepting applications for residencies. Visit the Museum of Motherhood's website at mommuseum.org. That's mommuseum.org. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Tripart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You may also find this episode at YouTube at Trapart Film's YouTube channel. Just search for Trapart Film or Rendering Unconscious Podcast at YouTube. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and sign up for my newsletter on the contact page to stay abreast of all upcoming events. You can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, and follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Thank you so much for listening to Rendering Unconscious Podcast and for your support. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. Um, well, you asked me a bit about how I got interested in the things that I'm interested in. So I can give you a little bit of a background of me. Um, I can begin there. I'll just say that the two things that, that interest me most right now um, are kind of hybrid between feminist psychoanalysis and maternal mental health um, and community psychoanalysis. So knowing that those are the two things that really captivate me and occupy me the most, um, I'll give a bit of my background. I mean, I was born an outsider. Um, I was born a girl when 
you're meant to be born a boy in the the rural conservative Midwest where I was born. Um, and, you know, so that that is a is an ideology or an identity that kind of influences, I think, how I see the world in a lot of ways. Um, and I know that this is very different from being displaced. Um, there's a lot that could be said about that, but those are, I think those are different influences. Um, you know, one of one of the stories from my from my childhood is that um, I was at least allowed to do some of the things that boys were allowed to do, um, like drive a tractor. And um, I I drove a tractor right through a fence. And one of the ways I've thought in my life about this event is that you know it was a very um, kind of silent, sophisticated way of saying I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Um, but but I also like to think of it as um, always looking for the elsewhere, right? The other side. Um, and, you know, when you're an outsider, even if you don't know all of the other places you could be or other, all of the other elsewheres that exist, you always know that there are other elsewheres and you're always kind of unintentionally on the lookout for them. Um, and just one, one little thing I would like to read you from, um, one of in this regard from my my favorite uh one of my favorite authors elaine sisu she says there has to be somewhere else i tell myself and everyone knows that to go somewhere else there are roots signs maps for an exploration a trip that's what books are we might say there are other things too everyone knows that a place exists which is not economically or politically indebted to all the vileness and compromise that is not obliged to reproduce the system. That is writing. If there is a somewhere else that can escape the infernal repetition, it lies in that direction where it writes itself, where it dreams, where it invents new worlds. Um, and, and I read you that because uh, it always moves me when I think of that, of the elsewheres and the the commitment and the faith in those elsewheres, um, some which I think have already been written by others that we don't know um, and ones that we're writing together. Um, yeah, so that was a bit of my my childhood and I went, um, I went from there, you know, eventually into grad school. I went to grad school at Fuller Seminary in California. Um, because I was seeking um, a study in psychology that respected the existential aspects of psyche. Um, and that's where I kind of knew to look. And actually that, um, that's where I was introduced to Jungian psychoanalysis. Um, and also in my time there, um, we, it was at least an ecumenical seminary where we studied um, um, monotheistic religions, individuals from each of the monotheistic religions. Um, and one of the things I worked on was the development of a just peacemaking inventory, which um, focused on a, not only behavioral morality, but the values and ethics uh, underlying moral behavior that may be culturally or religiously influenced. And, and so there's a threat of ethics, um, internal ethics, 
that goes, I think, throughout my work from that time. Um, but ultimately, that also um, was a bit too categorically religious um, for where I felt comfortable at that point. And um, I went on to study Jungian psychoanalysis um, with a blip in time because I became pregnant on my internship year. Um, and so there's ways that motherhood interrupted um, the and redirected the path for me, really, really. Um, I had three children in five years. Um, and so that's also a big part of my interest and a big part of, I think, identity that maybe doesn't get spoken about enough. Um, but then I eventually did do, do some, I moved to New York specifically to study Jungian psychoanalysis. Um, and then I also studied relational psychoanalysis here. Um, because to my, um, in my experience, there's, um, they each had a, a really important piece of, of the, of understanding the psyche. Um, but in some ways they each missed a piece too. And I know that there's a lot of students, grad students and early career professionals that listen. Um, so, you know, I, I say, I, I think for me, ultimately, the, um, the institutional track was not for me um, and was not my home. And I, I say that also because I think that's something that maybe doesn't get spoken enough um, and where there are things that can, can be missed. For example, in the, in the hyper intrapsychic way of thinking, I've heard things said like um, rape may or may not exist for a person who's telling you about it, but what matters is their, you know, their internal representation, um, which really divorces from the external event in history and in contemporary reality um, in a way that I, I find personally unacceptable. Um, you know, on the other hand, in, in a context that focuses pretty exclusively on the interpersonal, whether that be of the past or the present, um, things that are, are transpersonal um, or symbolic are often really discarded. And I've, I've had experiences where that's been, um, you know, really clearly stated and, and not allowed to come into the picture. So to my mind, I think the psyche aligns where there's a, um, a recognition of the intrapersonal, the interpersonal and the transpersonal uh, and finding ways to, to see that all of those things are, are operative and how they're operative for a person. Um, so then lastly, you know, I, I have been kind of existing in my private practice and my chosen community in New York, which is beautifully large and thriving in a way. Um, we have a beautiful analytic community here and internationally. Um, but there's an autonomy to it, right? Autonomy to private practice. And when, um, when COVID hit, very early in the pandemic, um, my office and all of the offices in the same building that I was using were, were broken into and being lived in by homeless folks um, who clearly needed housing. Um, 
and found therapy offices to be really a good place to find housing. That um, that experience has also been really influential in what I've decided to do going forward um, because I realized these individuals needed something from therapy that we were not able, I was not able to provide before, I wasn't providing before. Um, you know, Patricia Garavici says, um, bringing the barrio back into psychoanalysis and um, they brought it to me, you know, and I sadly, at the time, I did not know how to help those individuals. And I still don't know how to help those specific individuals. But that is, um, that's a big influence in my turn towards community psychoanalysis. Um, and that, that's kind of where I am right now. So <laughs> it's a brief, brief history. That's amazing. And there's so much there that we could go into. Um, but maybe we should start with the clinic since that's where we landed at the end and talk about how that's come about and what's going on with it now. And Sure, yeah. Um, so um, you've had on the podcast before, Carlos Padron, uh, he and I are working together as co-directors of a clinic that we're forming in Brooklyn, um, in Flatbush, Brooklyn specifically, um, which is called the New York Center for Community Psychoanalysis. Um, it is, uh, functioning as a nonprofit um, clinic organization um, that will be small, but because of all this, we're it takes it takes a good amount of time. Um, we're hoping to open um, in 2022, early on in the year, um, and we're beginning to take donations and do fundraising for this because a big part of um, changing the model is also changing the the funding model. Um, to really provide more equitable care. Um, so stay tuned for fundraising opportunities. Um, but, but yeah, so really that was the beginning of how, how this vision for the clinic came about, um, was seeing the urgency of um, doing something different and not, do, not only doing something different in a group practice model, um, where we can continue to offer pro bono work or sliding scale fees, um, but something fundamentally different. And if, you know, there, there are many institutions, whether they be, there are a number of, not enough, but there are a number of um, community clinics, not psychoanalytic, um, but community clinics exist in the city um, for the underserved. Um, there's more emphasis towards uh, work in the community and towards more um, integrated care centered around behavioral health. Um, but, you know, and in addition to institutional work, say in hospital settings, I, I see just how divorced the private practice setting is from those clinic or institutional settings. It's sort of one or the other. And not only in practice in terms of what a patient gets to experience, mm -hmm. um, but also in how we share knowledge and ideas with each other. Um, I've met a tremendous amount of amazing active smart people who are working in another aspect of the field who I never would have met before. So I think part of the clinic is also um, about really collaborating 
um, with people that we wouldn't otherwise. We're also developing a consortium of you know any related professionals um, so that we can share and ideas and work together. Yeah. And I've seen you've been having like town halls and that sort of thing to sort of see what the community is looking for to connect with other people in the community. Exactly. I think that that is um, that's one of our initial premises of of the work is that we have to start from the ground up and neither Carlos nor I are you know, believe that we can bring something and be the saviors in a way, right? And we very much try to um, work from a different model that is very conscious of um, a savior model. I mean, obviously, as analysts, as therapists, we bring something that the community doesn't have. However, the community, any community you're talking about, but I know this in in fact, for the Flatbush community, has a lot of history, rich, passionate, complicated history and current happenings um, that we don't bring, right? And and we have to work with them as part of the community um, to know what's needed and to know how to listen to them. And likewise, um, to be trusted as actually belonging in the community, to be part of it. So I think that's fun. That's part of, um, sometimes we ask ourselves, what's taking so long, right? Because we want to hit the ground right now (laughs) fully. um, But what's taking so long? This is one of the things that takes so long is, I mean, if you, you know, in any work that is, um, like racial reckoning groups, um, it takes time. And almost always I hear the message slow down, right? We have to get to know each other first. We have to get to know if we're going to trust each other first. Um, And that's, you know, for others who want to do similar work elsewhere, that's the first thing I would say is um, you have to start from a foundation of trust and that takes time. Absolutely. And maybe when it's time for the clinic to open, you you and Carlos can come on together and talk. That would be really fun. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we would love that. Yeah, I love him. He's amazing. He's doing amazing work, too. And I want everyone to make sure to follow your Instagram. The New York Center for Community Psychoanalysis has an Instagram, which I will link to. And you have an Instagram, New York City Depth Psychologist. And you always post amazing quotes like the one that you read. Oh, (laughs) thank you. Yes. Yes, I'm active there. And maybe we could talk about motherhood because my experience, like I had a friend that got pregnant during graduate school and they literally only gave her three weeks off. Like they told her that she got more than three weeks that she wouldn't be in the program anymore. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I I just listened to And she I, did I just, it. She did it. She came back in three weeks. Yeah. I just listened to Jacqueline Rose speaking about um, her new book on violence and violence against women. Um, and she said, you know, when when Cheryl Sandberg says to lean in, she doesn't mean bring your baby to the boardroom, right? <laughs> that the one thing we know about motherhood is that you're, 
you're it's it's another way of saying you have to do it all but you have to keep everything you do separate there's the domestic realm and there's the professional realm um so that's especially within the field that's painful to hear yeah this is psychologist exactly like yes. do psychologists know that that's not healthy <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, this is one of the ways that I think, you know, for me, um, motherhood and feminist psychoanalysis dovetail completely with community psychoanalysis, because it means the realities of the external world have to be a part of how we think about the individual. And not how just how we think about them, you know, you get to carry yourself individually into a quiet, reflective room, but how we be with the individual, which is not always in a quiet, reflective room. You know, recently I had to go um, to the emergency department, um, which I'm fine, but I noticed when I was there that in a very short amount of time, I saw three families with um, children who were not their patient. They were, they just brought their children because they, um, didn't have childcare and they had to seek emergency care. And I think, you know, this was another huge message to me about just how, I mean, and of course I, I, I had only gone there after I was able to drop my children off with their father from whom I'm divorced, that there has to be this sort of, it's embedded in our, in our culture of, um, there's not, there's not collective care um and i think this is one of the things that i seek to remedy um you know whether that means childcare in the clinic um so that mothers especially fathers also any any caregiver can actually come for treatment when they need treatment um and one of those you know there are multiple barriers to treatment and that's one of them that's a really, uh, that's a really great idea. I had never thought of that. Mm. Yeah, you know, and, and something that I think about um, also is, you know, what I call like the totalizing effects of the whitewash nuclear family. Um, the This idea and the reality um, in the institution of motherhood that we are so reduced to a nuclear system um, and that whatever supports are there are only within the nuclear family, another partner perhaps, but usually that falls to the woman. Um, and then there aren't supports. And, you know, this is, I think this is a very um, white reality um, or something that has happened because of whitewashing that we've taken away the extended family. Um, and reproduced an idea that it all falls, not even generationally, um, but it all falls in this one moment in time onto this one person. Um, and, you know, so, so I share also my history about during internship, becoming pregnant, um, and that changing the course of my profession, because I you know, I also was almost consumed by the institution of motherhood, um, both in the, the surprise of it happening and the necessity of it happening. Um, 
at such a young age? And then what happens when motherhood comes into a person's life? And where where is there room left to think? Um, where is there room left to care about other children? Um, you know, where things are so competitive and between families, between children, um, and put you know, schools are overcrowded and who who else is going to support your child? It's more and more on the individual family to promote only the well-being of their own children. And then it's exhausting and there's no, there's hardly any time left at the end of the day to reflect on the needs of others. Um, and And so I think that also peeling away the layers of that institution more and more by providing peer support and childcare and community care um, in the early stages, from the very early stages, even the, the prenatal phases um, is essential if we're going to involve, like to reshape the way that individuals and families relate to each other, it has to start there. Yeah, and since I've been in private practice and out of the institutes and totally on my own, I've, of course, like, continually reflect back on the things I was taught. <laughs> and, like, like I can't imagine teaching other people those things. And one of them also, because um, I'm from Miami, one of them also was, like, um, everything was, like, culturally embedded as to, like, whether something was pathological or not. And they also, they always taught us that like if people lived in extended family situations, it was like seen as like that was somehow like pathological, like that wasn't healthy or that people hadn't like evolved or progressed to like live on their own. Um, and then they would say, unless it's like uh, from this specific community there, it's culturally condoned. But this idea, even that idea of like, so it's only normal if it's okay normal in your culture and otherwise it's pathological like that's not an okay way to think about things either right no thank you for that because i think that's a perfect example of the the whitewashing that i'm talking about um where it becomes the definer of what is normal um and then pulls people further and further towards that um because of that judgment yeah it's yeah. really it's so pervasive in the US and so really, it's just really unhealthy and hopefully being undone more and more, like hopefully this is coming up more and more and people are realizing how messed up all of this. <laughs> I, it seems like it and I hope so. Here in Sweden, um, they, they take maternity leave and paternity leave really seriously. Mm -hmm. And like people have to take a certain amount of time off like the first year and they get paid their full salary. And also the father also has to take time off. Like there's a certain amount, I don't know exactly what it is because I haven't had a baby in Sweden, but um, I know there's a certain amount of time, like say two years and like the mother can take a certain amount, but the father like has to take like nine months or something. Like he also has to take time off of work to be with the baby. Wow. Right, and so that's really a value. That's amazing. And yeah, do you when know- I, When I first moved here, I just, there's so many men with strollers like when I would go on my morning walk, <laughs> so many guys with strollers. And I just like had never seen that before. <laughs> I would get so excited, like take pictures of them. <laughs> guys taking strollers. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. And do you know what people do in those years away from work? In, the, in terms of the 
the community aspect of parenting in the early years? Um, I don't know for sure, but I just know that they're there with the baby. I'm sure they, you know, have communities in the park. They love they love parks here and mm -hmm. um, like meeting up. So you always see like men with their strollers and like it would be also like three different guys with the strollers. So it was like clearly like the dad had like their play date or whatever where they would all like go jogging or to the park with the babies. Yes. Yeah, that's heartwarming. <laughs> I would like to see that everywhere. <laughs> yes. And you want to talk about maybe Jungian psychoanalysis? I haven't had many people talk about what Jungian kind of formation is like. Oh, I could talk about, I hadn't thought about that so much, um, Jungian psychoanalysis. I think we're, well, you know, some central aspects of Jungian psychoanalysis uh, is not only the, the personal unconscious, um, which often gets emphasized, but the collective unconscious. And that's where um, the archetypes are really integral in the theory is that, um, and why it has become such a, an intra-psychic focus, because I think the thought is that if you go deeply enough into the personal psyche that you also come to the collective, um, you know, this is shared, of, of course, across different, different theories, but um, that there's the, the perspective function of the symptom is also highly emphasized, not, um, I think, in my experience, it's in, it's often in contrast to um, the retrospective looking aspect of the function, uh, I'm sorry, of the symptom. Um, and but really, I think that that the heart of Jungian work is is both of those things, and that's where you know you can say that there's the interpersonal, the interpersonal, and the transpersonal at once. Um, where are these you know just different different dimensions of the same thing happening? Um, but for example, you know, the mother archetype is not one thing, <laughs> um, but we we can have. Um, a generative mother, we can have a Madonna mother, we can have a, a, a dead mother. Um, and there, if we, if we sort of through the, the repetition um, that brings us to the past, um, I think in Jungian work, we don't only arrive we very specifically don't arrive only at the past, but next to the dead mother, we also find the generative one and they're, they're, they're linked, of course, in the unconscious. And that there's, I think that's where a lot of the, the generative potential is, is in accessing um, through dreams and through symbolic imagery, um, what is very unfamiliar and unexperienced. Um, but the idea that it is experience, it is already known in some way, an unthought known um, in, right, in, in what has not yet been experienced in personal life that has been experienced sort of um, in the larger collective. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I've been thinking, I used to read Young when I was like 20 or like in undergrad. And then like once I was in grad school that I haven't actually really read him since. And I've just started returning to him recently because I realized that I had developed this kind of prejudice 
because mm -hmm. it's so divided between like Freud and Young and like mm -hmm. the Freudians and the Canians have kind of joined together a bit but like every everyone in psychoanalysis is so split off it's like the Kleinians mm -hmm. and the relational and the Jungians and the Lacanians and like I found that nobody really talked to each other that much. In New York, it's great because you have all of the different schools, but of course, even since moving here, there's not like, there's not that kind of uh, psychoanalytic community here. There's not like 50 institutes like there is in New York, you know? <laughs> and so it's really hard to find any analysts at all, really. Um, they're, they're around, but it's not, it's not the same kind of community like in New York. Um, but I realized that I had developed this sort of prejudice against the, against Jung, like, oh, that's like what I read when I was a kid or something like that. And I only realized that like recently. So it's like, I'm gonna return to Jung and start reading him again more. And of course his ideas are fantastic. Cause the thing I, I realized I was saying all the time was like, oh, I respect him, but I don't use him. I don't find him clinically useful. But it's like, mm -hmm. I haven't even actually read him since I've been a psych psychologist. So like, how would I know that? Like, where did I even get that from? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's another one of the famous anecdotes about Jung is that the, you know, the Myers-Briggs is developed out of Jung's work in typology, which he developed in part because of his relationship to Freud, that it was it was kind of his way of, of studying and seeing there's very different ways of thinking here, um, but they're all valid and they all have a place. And, you know, we can call that typology. <laughs> what we what we do in the outer world and how we we experience ourselves internally um there's not one way to do it but i think also you know for various reasons um certain ways have more of a stronghold and i think that that is one of the things I, that also really guides me in in the development of our clinic um is the multiplicity the multiplicity of thought, um, the multiplicity of orientations, um, and that that shows up. It has to show up, I think, in in all sorts of ways. What do we mean by multiplicity? But that's one of the places that it starts is in theoretical orientations. You know, first of all, we we are unified around the common idea that there is an unconscious, um, and that the unconscious is larger than our, our conscious minds and that we are committed to the exploration and the work with unconscious processes. But beyond that, I mean, as long as everyone who is in the work together has a strong theoretical orientation and commitment to practice of their own, that we have a reason to be together and collaborate and um, and grow our ideas because of exposure to those differences. Um, so the clinic is founded in um, in a commitment to the multiplicity of theoretical differences, as well as racial differences, linguistic differences, um, as a parallel to my understanding of, of course, my limited understanding of the unconscious itself, that it is multiple and it is unknowable. Um, but, you know, who do we allow ourselves um, at least the opportunity to come up against um, and against in that generative sense of what differences are we willing to expose ourselves to? Um, that's 
also where I, where I lead with the idea of being an outsider and always looking for elsewheres um, and knowing that there are elsewheres that exist, that have existed long before me, um, that are just others that are, are just as committed to their histories and their identities as I am to mine, um, but that I, you know, we need to go in search of those elsewheres and others who we do not yet know. Um, and that is, that is a fundamental commitment. Yeah, I love that the unconscious is elsewhere also. Yes. <laughs> yeah, even if my approach is to sort of, you know, at, at a much younger age was to drive over the fence to get to it. Um, <laughs> some have, uh, you know, the, the idea that, I think the idea of boundaries, um, yeah, this is something I do wanna say that, we have to do more work with boundaries. Um, we have such a, I think in the field, perhaps in the US more because of our ideas of liability um, that influence the work, whether we want it to or not, um, that the emphasis is more on where the boundaries are. But of course, in the negative space, there's also the potential for an emphasis on where the boundaries are not, right? Like I say, um, with skin, right? It's a semi-permeable membrane. So you can focus on the way in which it's not permeable, or you can focus on the ways in which it's permeable. Um, both are extremely important. Um, you can't be overly permeable and you can't be overly closed. And and I think that that is also part of my feminism and part of those who have done the long work in community analysis is being permeable. Um, yeah, and even going back to Freud, you know, he didn't like the way that the institutes have structured the way psychoanalysis has to be and like with these really strong frames is like, that's not what Freud did or talked about doing, you know, he like would if somebody needed something, he would like feed them or take them on a walk, you know, and, like he was much more open and open to yes. being a human. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was, um, I'm, Carlos and I, one of the early things that we've been doing is leading a, um, a consultation group um, as part of the clinic work. Um, and, and recently the idea came up in that group um, where we've centered around the, the ideas of Christopher Bolas um, that so often when someone brings a case of a, a patient who has, you know, complex compound issues um, that we might find, you know, we might use the word difficult, um, to describe the case and that so often what comes shortly after that description is the statement that, you know, and then we don't work together anymore or they left the treatment. Um, and another way of thinking about it is, is what, why does a person leave the treatment? What isn't enough in these especially complicated cases, what isn't enough to hold them. And I think we can, you know, we can't hold everyone, that's true, um, nor I think, nor should we. Sometimes people need a different 
um, something else to help them better. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of people do fall through the cracks, even when they seek treatment. Um, and we have to do a better job of saying, why weren't they held? What was it about our commitment to a very closed um, idea of what analysis is um, that made it unsustainable for them? You know? mm -hmm. And beautifully, actually, this came up in the context of someone talking about where a person did stay. Um, and I can't say more, of course, but um, I think I, I will just say generally that it had to do with a reevaluation because of a, a very thoughtful reevaluation with the specific circumstances of the individual of what they needed that someone might say fall outside of the bounds of what psychoanalysis is um, because of these things, like whether it's food or how much time is spent um, or the location of the services, um, but that actually allowed them to stay. And that's the goal, right? Not only to stay, but to heal um, and to not be, be continually burdened unconsciously by what's troubled them and probably has troubled their, their family for generations. Mm. And that's a really good point. That's why I think too, that since everyone is now used to online treatment I think online therapy could really help with that as well because people can do it like mothers or people who have small children could do it at home when they still have their children or people that um, might be homebound and not able to leave the house so easily can have treatment or people who just work from home or freelance or just prefer to do it from home um, or don't have access to psychoanalysis in their town you know can have Absolutely. treatment online Right. I mean, and I think that that's what takes a, a very, uh, a commitment to really understanding what each case needs. And it requires a lot of work um, and the the a strong theoretical grounding, but that the same thing isn't needed for each case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even if you say uh, the frame is very important to me, the frame is very important to me. Um, but if you go into a frame store, they're not going to sell you one frame for every picture you want framed, right? The frame has to fit the picture. And it's our job, just like the craftspeople that you go to in a frame store to study and consider what is the picture and what is the frame that need, that's needed to fit that. So I think virtual therapy really, you know, I, I am a proponent for virtual therapy. Um, you know, first of all, that it continues to be um, supported by third party payers in the US because that's something that is always, you know, that we're always have to, having to be vigilant about um, is these norms that are set for us outside of the profession. Um, but that it is, it is offering something to people um, who would not otherwise have it, first of all, like you're saying, because of, you know, not living in a, in a location where it may be accessible or family circumstances that may not make it accessible. Um, but also that there are so many people for whom virtual therapy is not effective, that it's not a one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing with the community clinic that we're, we're forming is it's very important to exist in physical space. 
and not just any physical space. You know, when I first started thinking about this, I first, you know, had the idea of developing the clinic in, near where, where my other offices were around Midtown in Manhattan. Um, because, you know, you need an office, people come, end of story, right? No, people live where they live and they walk down the same streets, they walk down every day and the same intersections and who they see and who's who's moving in, who's having to move out, um, who has lived here for generations and what are the histories between those people, the conflicts, um, you know, the other, the other things that are happening, whether it be about food insecurity, um, immigration issues, those happen in specific places because no matter how, how much we move into a virtual lifestyle, um, we still exist in our bodies and in physical space. And so there's that duality that the clinic is having to address. And I think all of us have to address in some way moving forward is um, we will be a virtual community, right? There's there's no doubt about that. And we get to share in the knowledge around the world, just like you and I are doing because we have virtual community um, at the same time as um, we have to exist in physical space because we, you know, even more so the way that um, the people are more and more, not only bifurcated, but just narrowly focused on what is already familiar to them through algorithms and everything in um, social media and whatever news we follow in the virtual world, that when we have these confrontations in physical space, it's so much more surprising and unsettling um, and as if it should be otherwise, right? As if there should be no elsewhere except the elsewheres I choose. Um, so it's essential to continue to operate in physical space and create ways of existing in difference um, when we are tending to go more and more narrowly um, only towards sameness. That's really beautifully put. I also love how you talked about um, how you kind of had these two different trainings at the union and then the relational and then like finding your own way like finding what you felt was useful from the different views but also it was lacking and like filling it in with different theorists or you know i think that's really important like you said to talk about um especially for people that are like early career or graduate students um because i find it really disheartening that so many people like find one theorist and then they're very rigidly study that theorist which fine if that's what you want to do but then they like can't really think about anything that's outside mm -hmm. of like what that specific theorist said and most of the big theorists came to their work through their own personal experience and working mm -hmm. with patients and like what they saw happening in exactly that way like okay I've learned this and this but I don't see this anywhere and like kind of creating that and then a bunch of people resonate with that so that needs to continue we need to keep yes. doing that <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, I'll use sort of religious metaphors um, because I think that, you know, that has been at least for the, for many, um, <laughs> many millennia before us, um, a way of understanding worldviews and understanding the psyche. Um, but there's a Hindu saying that the, the shortest way up the mountain is to just take one path. Um, 
and that is a way of saying, you know, there are, there's a recognition that there are many different religious traditions that lead to the same place. But if you take a little bit from here and a little bit from here and you study Hinduism and you study Catholicism and you practice Buddhism, it's going to take you a lot longer to get to the same place. Um, I always take a circuitous path. <laughs> it's my nature. Um, I think if it takes longer, what's taking so long? Um, it's, it's in the multiplicity, you get a different kind of richness. Um, some people do take the other path and that's fine. Um, some people are very committed to singular theorists or their theory is um, one that really, really orients them. And I think um, there's a lot to learn. That is a deep way of approaching the work. Um, but again, it's the permeable and semi-permeable that we all have to be semi-permeable to some extent. Um, you know, the other religious image that comes to mind is that um, that every every religion is a kind of a funnel that takes these contents, you know, whether they be collective unconscious contents um, or the real, and they funnel it into some symbolic language um, that is um, more understandable because what exists at the transpersonal level, whether that's, you know, however you think about what that is, is not completely understandable. And so we need systems to funnel it and to give it shape right? And religion has done this in so many ways. Obviously, there are other things which give shape um, to our understanding. Um, but I, I think that I'm also a mystic, right? And so <laughs> the theories, I think, have to have permeability for that, for recognition that whatever, whatever you see um, is only a part seeing, I love that. And I also love that you post astrology on your Instagram. I'm happy <laughs> too. Because I my mom my mom's basically like a hippie and you know, I grew up like when I was born, she had my needle chart done and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But of course when I became a teenager, I was like, Get away from me with all your new age hippie stuff, you know? Um, and like I'm gonna be a scientist. <laughs> um, but then when I was in my early twenties, what was it? It was twenty three. It was when I was twenty three. I had, uh, what do they call them? Spiritual emergency. Spiritual emergency mm -hmm. came to like a crisis point where I was like, I need some guidance. And I went to, I went to a Catholic priest and I was like, can you help me? <laughs> and I talked to my mom and she's like, you need to talk to my astrologer. Um, and I was like, okay, fine. I'll talk to the astrologer. And then she talked, I talked to her and it was like, I don't know what was going on, but she was like, every single planet is lined up. This only happens every like how many thousand years it's happening on your birthday. So like things might feel a bit chaotic for you right now. It's <laughs> like, no kidding. Um, so that's when I started listening to her and like paying attention to her. She does like these classes every two weeks that I used to take um, and I still get them emailed. Um, but really that then I just had it just for me. I just like listening to Brenda because it kind of, I actually feel at this point like I wish astrology would like be on the news like the weather because mm -hmm. I feel like 
if you feel like something's going on that's stressful like inside yourself and then you kind of read what's going on astrologically it can help you realize like okay this isn't just me I'm not just like feeling really stressed out for no reason like this is something that's happening it can kind of help you calm mm-hmm. down and, and orient yourself a little bit um and let it like just ride it out it will pass and the planets will change um but the only time I really started taking it seriously was after I was like a full-fledged psychologist and in private practice specifically and I was seeing like eight people in a row 10 people in a row during the day and mm-hmm. there was always these themes I would notice was like people would be all like focused on a relationship this day or like having some sort of conflict and like people seem to have these themes throughout the day and often they were also like things that were happening in my life and so then I started realizing like hey there is something like really to this. (laughs) Yeah no I think that's so beautifully put also how astrologers who um, I mean, it's just like anything, right? You can you can find people who are very new agey and understand that there's a way to drive a profit through it. And there are people who are, you know, finding water in deeper wells and who are very committed to a, a very strong historical practice. Um, but that in those people who I know, there is such a, a way of seeing the transpersonal in relation to the interpersonal, um, you know, the, the idea that your soul chooses to be born to the specific parents you have and at the specific point in time and in geography that it does, because that is how it will meet its destiny and, and have the opportunity for you to live out your individual possibilities, you know, not in a faded way of what is decided, but what is opportunity, what your soul needs to work out. Um, And I, I think that, right, that existing approach to who you are as an individual is already in relationship to so much more than you, but you are, you know, it's the back and forth between those two. And I think, and like it, going back to community psychoanalysis, this is, there's so many aspects of the interpersonal that we're just really beginning to let into the field of of psychology and psychoanalysis. I mean, of course we have interpersonal psychology, which, which I think historically, you know, focuses on the historical development of the individual in relationship. And we have relational psychoanalysis and the, the that focuses so much on the 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 dyad um, and unconscious contents that that show up through the dyad, um, and we have field theory and um, which does a bit more, um, I think. But but the in, interpersonal is also social, historical, and the development of the individual. We, we exist not only, again, in the nuclear family isn't the only thing that develops us, but our social historical context develop us. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad to the social work analysts who I know who bring this perspective, I think, more powerfully than, than I knew before. Um, but again, not only in the historical context, but in the now of what is what are the communities and the cultural context that that people are embedded in now that has to be a part of how we conceive of what's happening for any individual that we're with. Yeah, and I think that's also a really good point that I want to emphasize that I'm, I really believe in like all these different 
different um, clinicians, different types of clinicians, people with different kinds of degrees, um, being able to be psychoanalysis and lay analysis and because I think it just makes the field so much richer and like the idea that like only MDs can be psychoanalysts and then uh, only MDs and psychologists is like, no, I think, I think massive level social workers, mental health counselors, artists, people, philosophers, literature degrees, like I think it would be great to have all of these kinds of different people trained as psychoanalysts or working as psychoanalysts because it just makes the theory and the way of thinking so much richer. Absolutely. And the one thing that I also noticed that I wanted to tell you, I really love your two stories, your antidotes. It's like the one when you were a little girl and like driving through the fence, like breaking your boundary <laughs> in a very kind of physical way. And then also with people like needing housing and coming into your office, also like kind of mm -hmm. breaking through this boundary in this like very physical way. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, I, I just think that there's, there's so much work to be done here. It's, and so I, I, my hope for, for the future is just more that, that part of existing in community is that, that we can, you know, collectively put our heads together about how, how to be semi-permeable. Yeah. That's a beautiful place to stop. Was there anything you wanted to talk about that before we wrap up or any events coming up or any announcements or anything like that? Uh, sure, there's um, a lot to, that I'm looking forward to um, that I'll share with you. The next thing that I'm doing is I'm going on a residency, a writing residency um, with the Museum of Motherhood um, that you know I'll put a plug in for um, because it is, it's a really inclusive space. There is a um, residency opportunities on a, a revolving basis for anyone committed to um, the study and the creative work around motherhood studies. Um, so that can be visual artists, it can also be scholars, it can be um, writers. Um, and, and there is a a studio space that is available um, for residencies for it's affordable for anyone um, who qualifies um, if their work is committed to to the um, academic study of motherhood. Um, but I, I'll be there in July um, working on a book that I've been working on for a while again, um, Circuitous Path. Um, it's a part memoir, um, part self-help um part interview uh collection around um how women know what we know um so so that's something that i look forward to sharing eventually um and i encourage um, anyone who is interested to look into the residency and also there's a journal um that's a part of that the journal of mother studies um it's submissions closed but the the journal will be out um in the fall of this year um but also in regard to community psychoanalysis, there are a couple of things coming up in, um, in September of this year, I'll be on a panel at um, the Psychology and the Other Conference, um, which is about community psychoanalysis and the ethics of care, um, 
So it will be all virtual this year. It's, um, it's held in Boston usually, but we'll um, be in, inclusive in that way this year. Um, so anyone can attend. Um, and then in, in the spring at the Division 39 conference, I'll also be on a panel, which is about psychoanalysis outside of the consulting room. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to speaking with some really amazing folks on these issues. Um, and then on those lines, I'll just also put a plug in for um, the Psychotherapy Action Network, which I'm a part of. And I think anyone um, who is interested in psychoanalysis should be a part of. It is free to join. It's advocacy work. Um, I think it's pretty limited to the U.S., um, but it is nationwide. Um, and we need to do advocacy for um, therapies of depth, insight, and relationship and bringing more visibility to that, um, as well as, you know, accountability in, in Congress and in our policies, um, because this is part of community work. So please join if you're not already a part of the amazing work that's happening there. Um, and then, of course, um, with the New York Center for Community Psychoanalysis, um, just encourage folks to um, continue to follow us. We'll be um, posting more and more on, on Instagram and, um, you know, bringing awareness when, um, when it's possible um, to make donations to that effort and also when we're offering other community events or workshops um, and hope to see a lot of people there and continue to work with people in this development. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for all the work you're doing. It's really fantastic. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be in this community and wonderful to know you. Thank you, Vanessa. Great. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Tracy Seidslinger. For more, visit her website, nycdepthpsychology.org. You can also visit the Museum of Motherhood website at mommuseum.org. Follow Dr. Seidslinger on Instagram at NYC Depth Psychology. And you can also follow the New York City Community Center for Psychoanalysis at nyc.community.psychoanalysis at Instagram. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. For more information, you can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, and sign up for my newsletter on the contact page to stay abreast of all upcoming events. You can also visit the Rendering Unconscious main website, renderingunconscious.org, and follow me at Instagram and Twitter at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore.
Thank you so much for listening to Rendering Unconscious Podcast and for your support. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23carl. Your support is so appreciated. Thank you so much to all of our Patreon patrons. Becoming formless, opening doors we didn't know existed. With the establishment of the patriarchy comes the delineation of gender. What makes a man and what makes a woman? The patriarchy establishes an entire system of culture created to perpetuate itself. It continually enforces and reinforces its own system, which it created. Patriarchy defines masculine characteristics in positive terms, while the feminine is negative. Patriarchy also establishes and enforces the binary of the opposition masculine-feminine in the unconscious. The subject is inserted into her sexual nature, sexuality preceding the I. Attempts to grasp onto an identity can be seen as one grappling with sexuality, with one's intrinsic sexual nature, attempting to categorize it, restrict it, contain it, and give it a limit in an effort to control it. Established in the original argument and is continually operated and reinforced by the system it created. The question now is what happens when such a patriarchal system begins to be put into question. When its structure of gender and prescribed role problems begins to crumble. Historically, During times of instability, when the patriarchal structure was put into question, there was merely an exchange of one primal father for another. Take down a king and replace him with another king. The system, formless void, in which our periodic table of elements, as well as the human form, was created. As humans, we are predestined to regiment. There is routine and there is deviation. If we look at the cut-up technique designed by Brian Geisen, we can see a connection between routine and the room with a first-come, first-served policy each morning. This disrupted attachment to material possessions, personal space, privacy, 
separation between self and others. One that takes down the previous system ends up being structurally the same underneath. One revolution replaces another and then becomes the ruler. Such choral techniques also have a separating or discriminating effect as in the threshing, an image that Plato employs in his love, warmth, exploration, creating memories in me, and so many others. I'm so honored to have met you. Your passing makes no sense. Death seldom does. Your leaving us so soon will have to be a motivation, an incentive to value life even more, and not waste even a moment of it. In the current situation, hopefully, the system is being deconstructed and there is a real fight against maintaining the status quo. Heart to heart and soul to soul, we can and will carry on doing what we do. Art to art and roll to roll, we will keep your memory alive, loving you for who you were, still are, and always will be. It was definitely inspired by alchemy and the idea of the hermaphrodite. In folklore, the original human or the original virus, and also an angelic representation of humans. That image fascinated us because this was a way of being that was fruitful in every possible way. An artist's muse. The hermaphrodite is a symbol of creative potential. The daughter of Babylon is like a threshing floor. It is time to thresh her, yet a little while and the time of her harvest will come. Deviation. According to Brian Geisen and William S. Burroughs, the cut-up technique is a juxtaposition of language, cutting up written text to form new text, creating third mind. Looking at deviation, we can see it is essentially a physical cut-up that can be done at will or by the unconscious mind at any moment. Chaos is third mind. Third mind is deviation. Therefore, becoming formless in the state of being through both conscious and the unconscious.